endearing. That's going to be a word you're going to hear a lot today. When we first pitched the idea of wanting to do a book club, there was no doubt in my mind what the first book should be. As you'll hear from our thoughts and ramblings, this first episode covers a wrestler that's very near and dear to our hearts, but one whose book opened the door for wrestling biographies to come and still sits as a benchmark. So please pull up a chair, get comfortable, and join us as we look through the pages of Have a Nice Day, A Tale of Blood and Sweat Socks. Hello everybody and welcome to the first ever episode of the Bearhook Club Book Club. Uh, Greg here, joined by his very own hardcore legend at the moment, Mr. Garrett Winter. How's it going, Garrett? Well, oh, sorry, hold on. <clears throat> hardcore legend over here. Give everyone a stubby hello. <sighs> he's got, uh, he's got uh, two thumbs and a broken wrist. Look this guy. Do you want to tell the audience for how you ended up with a broken wrist there, buddy? Well, you see, we were doing um, some unscripted bits in the ring, because it's, you know, still real to me, damn it. And uh, we were just doing some heel and face work, and I was heel, uh, which means that, you know, I should call the spots, really, right? That's, the, that's what you should do. And yeah. I was in there with our academy champion, who, you know, should really should really be calling the spots, and he was. Um, we go to lock up. I step out of the way. Everyone calls me a chicken. I turn. I'm like, me? <laughs> no. Um, goes to lock up. He he dodges the lock up. Goes for a, a a waist lock. Right. So he's behind me. I'm like, you know, struggling out. He calls something, and I call something at the same time. And he goes, um, and he basically was just, just like, because he's a very lovely guy, um, was like, what did you call? And I was like. I was like, cool. And I was like, okay, uh, lift me up, take me to the ground. So just a basic waist lock, you know, like this. Lift yeah. me up. I, I go, whoa. And then I go to the ground. Now, I don't remember going down weirdly. Okay. However, I hit the ground, and I don't remember a loud crack. I don't remember a, a something. Mm-hmm. I lo- I know, I'm like, instantly, I look up without... I look up to my to my coach and I'm like, I, I broke my wrist. And, he goes, <laughs> and I'm still in the waist lock, right? On the floor. And I'm like, I broke my wrist. And he's like, what? And I'm like, I, my wrist is broken. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I'm what? like, and then, and then um, uh, Xander's like, uh, he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I broke my wrist while he's still holding me. And then, <laughs> and then, I, and then I, and then I sit up, right? With my wrist, like, just out of out of place. Uh, I, I, if I have any decent pictures of out of place, I'd send that to you. But um, like it's just sticking out. And I turn to like the crowd, uh, the other wrestlers, and I'm just like, I broke my wrist. Um, and I didn't feel it at all. Like it, it just didn't hurt at all. Well, that'd be like the adrenaline, right? I th- honestly don't know. I think I got very lucky with the break. It was just a, just it, the whole thing just came out. Well, you, you showed me the picture of the X, X-ray, and I'll get it up on here in, yeah. when it's time. But um, yeah, it, it looked like a very clean break as well. It, yeah, there, there wasn't any, it wasn't really fractured or grazed or or, or, or whatever. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It, I don't, it just didn't hurt that much. It, even like when we were in the car, I was like, this is alright. Like, it's not too bad. Because I, I, I was, expe- I was like, um, it must just be the adrenaline. But uh, mm. it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. 
I like to think I kept my cool pretty well. There were a few people that looked a little bit bluer than I did. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I'm now in a cast. I have a meeting at the Fracture Clinic on Monday to see if what the crack is there. Um, but yes, uh, it, honestly, it's weird because I know a lot of people would probably get something like this and then be like, oh, I guess I'm not going to ever wrestle again. But if anything, mm. this is... Um, it's removed any fear I ever had of breaking bones. Like, I know that I could probably get one that hurts a lot more than this. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, sure. But, like, I just, I just, I'm, I'm good. Like, I, I don't, I just want to, I want, I want to get back in now, you know? Uh, and I can't do that because I'd die. But <laughs> I'd like to do that. Well,. Considering you've been such a ring warrior this week and such a diverse injury, I think it's quite fitting that we're recording our first episode after you've broken your wrist, because uh, the first episode of our brand new book club was, of course, on Mick Foley's Have a Nice Day, A Tale of Blood and Sweat Socks, mm-hmm. published by Regan Books, first released in the 20th of October, 1999. And, I mean, Mick Foley's a guy who knows a thing or two about injuries, in fact, on the book itself, period. I would go and get my, I would go and get my <laughs> copy, but it's in the car, and that involves... That's fine. Finding my sling and everything, so <laughs> I just have it currently rested on a um uh, a Kenny Omega shirt, so That's fine. Um and rather fittingly on the back Foley does list all the injuries he had at the time. I mean obviously this was ninety nine, he started, I think he had quite a few more to go by the time he left his in ring career. And I let's say broken wrist. Yeah, broken right wrist. There you go, right there. So you're on your way, Garrett. You're on your way. I'm I'm getting there. Uh, I mean, one of the main one of the main things I was going to bring up is like uh, how actually handsome he was back in the day. Right. Uh, so I've got a way to go. I could go through a dude love phase. I could go through a, a cactus jack phase, and then eventually, with all those breaks, I could be a mankind. You know. <laughs> well, um, a couple of things before we go really meet into it. And um, I've read this book before. This is like one of the first books I ever bought. I think I was about. Like 2000 years once, I was only like seven years old when I bought this book. And it was a while before I actually read it properly because obviously I was a young kid, but I loved Mick Foley, still do. He was already one of my favorite wrestlers back then, so I got this book. Um, I've got the hard copy. You've got the paperback edition, which has got the additional chapters, don't you? So, uh, spoiler for anyone who's with the book, here's the original uh, hardcover version that came out. It ends when he wins the title off The Rock on that famous episode of Raw. Does yours end when it's meant to be his first retirement, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you get those additional chapters to it. So, I mean, the book's already meaty when it was first released. It's about uh, 544 pages, I believe. Uh, what did yours clock in around that? Oh, God, I can't remember. It's a, it's a good extra chapters. It's not like you're just getting one or two extra chapters. You get, like, nearly... Did you get uh, Did you get the lovely pictures in the center as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. You still get the pictures, of course. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. So, yeah, like, like I said, I've read this book at least... This might be my fourth or fifth time I've read it. So, what was it like for you? The first. So, did you not? So, have you never read the extra chapters then? I have. So, when I first bought the book, it was um, the edition you've got. It came with the extra chapters. Mm-hmm. Had that for years and years and years. Lent it to my mate, and then he returned it to me in two halves because the okay. wear and tear on it. He was just reading it, and the book just went in two because sure. it's sure. it's a thick paperback. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I was halfway through it, and I was folding it over. I was like, ah, oh, probably. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's one of those ones. It's not, not going to last very long. No, it, it, those creases will get to it eventually, and it'll just flop into. Um, 
so yeah and then eventually I, I was given a hard cover copy i think christmas a few years ago so it's been back in my collection a while i, I do want to get your edition just to say i've got those extra chapters but yeah how did you, you find it reading it the first time i began reading it and i wasn't too enthralled um to start with because i was like wow um, well okay so i wasn't too enthralled because I, uh, it almost felt meandering for a second, and then uh, I realized he's actually a very, very good writer, and oh, pretty yeah. much everything in it, uh, you you end up just—it's all endearing, all mm-hmm. the time. Um, even the parts where it almost feels cringy, it then like crescendos into just a great story that you you end up laughing at, like um, when he's talking about Germany or. Uh, I really like to start to start the book. There's a big long section talking about um, tapes he used to make with his mates, and yeah. I it, for for a while I was like I don't really understand what this is, um, and then it it just snowballed into him finding his character, him finding a love for it, and people being endeared to him before he was even wrestling. You know, just taking a bump off of off of a roof or taking a bump off of a bunk bed or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, oh, right, wait, no. I used to make those videos myself as well, so I completely get it. I completely he's, get it. He's just essentially... Um, what, what you get from especially those parts about his years, because I was like during college when he did that, I believe, in like mm-hmm. high school. Um, he was essentially like how we were, a huge wrestling dork, basically. Sure. Like, I, like the whole reason... So for people who may not be familiar, because like they don't bring it up much now on WTV, but obviously back in the day, they used the footage to help with Mick getting over even more. Like it shot into the stratosphere, as you'll see in the book. Um, he, him, and his friends recorded this like daft little film that they made with him, basically playing the character of Dude Love before he even got the WWE, which is why it came to WWE. He, they they him... had very, I forget the exact name because I can't. I, I think my notes are still in the car as well. But um, it had he had very poetic titles about everything. He was uh, mm. he was quite a thespian. In, yeah. in in his creation of things it, it would be like he, you'd you'd see a, a picture of it later on or whatever and then he'd describe it as just like yeah I jumped off a roof or, mm-hmm. or whatever but then the title would be like uh, the deep echoings of the heart or something because <laughs> um, I mean a lot, a lot of it came about just simply because of like he got so the first time he did that which was just like the pictures which are in the book as well yeah. Because it's because he was like walking some girl home that he fancied and she got his name wrong when they got to her dorm. Yes. And it all just yeah. stems from that basically, like this guy who was really just not a not not a hit with the ladies, very heartbroken. And what does he do? He turns to wrestling to cheer himself up, which I can barely say we've probably spoken about on numerous occasions. Not to the level of pretending that you've jumped out of a window or then jumped off off your own building. Yeah. Per se. But you know. He's basically like what a lot of the fans are, to be honest. Yeah, um, I think he, you know, I I haven't actually read too many wrestlers' autobiographies. One of the reasons I wanted to do this is so that we could read more and branch out a bit. I mean, each of us are discussing what we're doing next. We've both picked up a copy of Mox. Um, we'll decide to go through that one. Um, but you know, did yours start with the Vader story? Yeah, so and I then the it books, went back in time. 
So yeah, I think the books are similar up until mine ends and you get you get your extra bits. There's no change there. So yeah, the book starts with him. I think I think sure. it's a great hook because that was kind of one yeah, of his yeah, yeah, big yeah. major things. So it starts with the story of how he lost his ear with Vader in Germany. And again, as, as, as Garrett said, he writes it in such a way that it can feel quite tragic, but then there's always a sense of humor to it as well. Like he's always trying to find the funny side, even though this is a guy who lost his like, lost his effing ear, as he would put it. And get, gets taken to one hospital, can't be treated there, gets taken to another, and then has to watch as a nurse just plops it in the bed because they can't save it anymore. Yep. Just very callously, just. Just, yep. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of it is very brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks, he talks quite morbidly about a lot of things, but in, in a very approachable way, I would say. Yeah. I think, I think what surprised me, Alan, because I think anyone who's a fan of Mick Foley, would would say obviously he loves wrestling, but it, it's very interesting to read how close he came to quitting on numerous yeah, occasions. Numerous before he got occasions. WWE. Yeah, like all through. I mean, his training and the lengths that he'd go to to get there. Or I mean, he's talking about his first proper school, which is him and three other students. Mm-hmm. And occasionally he'd drive for how? I mean, how many hours? Six hours or whatever to get there, and then hadn't been told that it was off. Mm-hmm. six hours back or maybe you drive six hours there and you don't even do an hour with someone else who was there and then drive that far back get stuck in his car and just talk about how he never wanted to go because he didn't know how to all he knew how to do was bump so all he'd do was bump mm-hmm. and that takes toll yeah and then of, and of course with that he went to dominic danucci's school which again like you're saying it took him well, because at the time he was in college, so he would yeah. do college for all the week, and then on a weekend, like say, he would travel in his car overnight, basically sleep in his car until the school opened. Then the weekend he would do the wrestling school, and then he would drive back in time for school on Monday. And basically, he slept. He, he did all the traveling. He slept in his car, even in like the harsh winters, with an America get some pretty brutal winters, living on basically jars of peanut butter, just because that's all he could afford. Like he never splashed out for a hotel or anything like that. I mean. Anyone who knows probably he's a frugal guy, but I'm guessing that's where a lot of it started to stem from. He just did what he could to scrimp and save, to be honest. Yeah. Stay afloat in life and defend his wrestling habit. I, I think I think that's one of the more touching stories is when um he's I think it's it's like after his first training and Daduchi sits him down and asks him how much he's wanting to pay. And doesn't he he's like, ah, oh, uh Daduchi, the the price Daduchi offered most people he couldn't afford. So he tried to give him a, a, a fair offer of around was like a hundred dollars and Danuchi said, No, you you pay me 50. Basically, the trainer was like, no, no, that's you're paying me too much. You can pay me this much if you're coming all the way here. And yeah, and then gave him boots it. for a steal as well. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had that uh, that <laughs> going on. Well, I mean, I mean, let's go, let's compare his training to yours this far then. I mean, yeah, how, how, how far do you have to travel for your training? I travel about an hour. I travel mm-hmm. about an hour to my training. Um it depends on how busy it is that day. I could I could whack it out in like forty minutes, really. Mm-hmm. But usually I grab a couple other guys on the way. Um, it's really it's not that much of a stress. It is with fuel prices right now, but it's not. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's not the 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 shit ton of hours he has to do. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you're um, you're not like going across the entire country just to get to it, and then you're not having to sleep in your car either. You can actually 
it's it's a little bit of a leg, but you I did I did okay, I did sleep in my car once after after our Guildhall show, our sold out Guildhall show in Plymouth. Uh, we went out. We went out. Right. We went out drinking. And um, I'd I'd stopped drinking because I was like I need to drive home because I can't get my car past three o'clock in the uh, in the car park, mm-hmm. and I was like I need to get home. I work the next day or whatever, so I was like okay, I'm gonna get the car and I start driving home. And honestly, I would have been a better driver drunk than I was uh, tired. So I start driving tired for the first time ever. Didn't realize how tired I was until I'm like halfway home, and I I like I was like. And the second I did that, I was like, okay, okay. And I, I like, I, I like held my eye open and I just parked in a, in a village and slept in my car for like two hours. Oh. So I technically slept after wrestling, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's like. It is because like I went out because I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's like your first proper kind of road story then. Um, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so. sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I knew, well, yeah. My first road story is I drove stupidly tired and nearly killed myself. Cool. Undertaker would be so disappointed in you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, like his training side of it is fascinating. And I think I think you're right, it can feel a bit meandering up until it gets to that point. But what I think the book overall does is that like you get a lot of biographies that because I mean, I think a lot of people would see the thickness of this. And be quite yeah. put off, you know what I mean? And 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 it is a thing where a lot of biographies can be like that, where it's like they kind of utter on about certain things to the point where like, well, this isn't really interesting. This is what I want to kind of focus on. I feel like everything in this does at least have a point of of focusing on wrestling, why he loves wrestling, why he stayed in wrestling, and how he had his success in wrestling. There's always it always ties back to it. I feel. Yeah, even his personal life stuff. Uh... Where you think he's just talking about him making pictures uh, after a, a rough time is like no, it always ties back. It's always a a lead into it, and I think I think his whole life is just kind of built towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really interesting learning about his family and stuff. I remember the the, the chapter. I don't I don't know. I was I, I'm pretty sure I was reading this in like a a long journey during work and yeah. Um, and I was like, I saw a bit about his dad, and I was like, eh, do I really care about this? And then you learn about his dad being, you know, um, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but like, you know, state sports commission or whatever it was. Yeah, um, a really respected man around yeah, the family yeah. area because of the stuff he did at like school and sports. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 interesting because you hear a lot of people talk about like, you know, no one supported them with their wrestling dream, um, and with this one, he. He still went through, you know, the hardships without that. He was he was supported, but in a in a very um, very smart way. Like you know, the first thing his coach tells him is like, "You still get, you're getting an education. Like mm-hmm. doesn't matter. You're getting an education first. Um, like you're not doing wrestling without an education." Blah 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 blah. blah. And his dad was always may have been may have been busy, but made time for him, uh, and and you know, sat down with him every now and again, watched wrestling with him, and. And whatnot, uh, mm. caught him when he tried to go to uh, go see Snooker. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, that's that's about the book. I mean, I, I mean, before we discuss that bit, um, well, one of my favorite parts is like how he talks about his dad. It what did have a bit of a sense of humor, but he was a bit of like a very stoic man at times, stuck in his ways. And I love the bit where he's talking about how in the summertime he would always try to write his dissertation, 
And he was basically, this obviously the time when you'd use a typewriter. And in, in Foley's book, it says how his dad didn't believe in things like Tipex or things like that. If you made a mistake on a page, he'd start again. So he writes as, all you hear in the summertime is a click, 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 click. Oh, shit. Oh, shit, 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 shit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, one of the funniest stories is where Foley's getting taken back to uh, get the bus to go back to college. Him and his friend had the plan of, uh, no, no, it's, it's Snooker versus Morocco in a steel cage. We're going to we're gonna get dropped off. Pretend we're going back to college and catch the bus to New York and we're going to go to the garden and see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, his parents drop him off and they say their goodbyes. And what him and his mate do is they run over into the trees near the bus yeah, station for- to hide from them. For no reason, they decide to jump into the woods. Yeah. But yeah. for no reason at all, they just go, we should just hide in the woods. They could have just stayed at the bus stop. Yeah. But no, the the woods. Yeah, the woods. Sure. And then, and then his parents actually do pull back around and they come into the car park of the bus station again, looking for him. And then Mick freaks out and he thinks, okay, we're just going to go back to college now. So he gets there. He actually gets there. And then when he gets there, he goes, you know what? No. I want, I, I, I made a commitment. I want to see Snooker Morocco in the cage. So he basically hitchhikes from his college and goes all the way back to New York to mm-hmm. watch the match. And the only reason he got caught out is because he got a front, basically a front row ticket and his dad spotted his flannel t-shirt in the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what a man. I mean, I, I would do that for a certain few matches. If Punk was nearby, I'd probably go and I'd hitch for a Punk match. Oh, even if he was just like if he was wrestling in like some random ass sports hall in like freaking Yorkshire, I'd hitchhike to get there if I had to. Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting as well is like when you read about. So obviously he had some kind of first matches, but when he, what's interesting is how he actually got um some early dark matches with the WWE, and not, not even necessarily dark matches. Some of them were recorded, so there is the uh, people have probably seen his first ever match was him and. I forget the name of his partner now, but they were wrestling the British Bulldogs. Mm. And it's the famous story of, so as Mick tells it in his book, like it's his first time really in a match. And he goes up to the Bulldogs and he's like saying, he's, trying, he's being nice. He's not trying to be like a jerk. But he's like saying, oh, I, I do this like elbow thing. Would it be okay if I did that? And then they're just chuckling at him going, yeah, sure, kid. You can do that if you want to. But then they get to the ring and they just kill him. They just basically yep. kill him. Uh, yeah, the yeah. famous thing is Dynamite, who's typically an angry man anyway, basically gets in the ring and nearly takes his head off of a clothesline, dislocates his jaw, and Foley couldn't eat solid food for about three months. But Foley being the consummate professional, like a lot of people, even if you're that young, would go back and try and shoot, try and like be like argue a case against them. And I think the Bulldogs are expecting that. He just comes up and just says, thank you, and just shakes the hand. Could have could have yeah, easily I... just kicked off, but he was just like, no, be professional. I think at that point he'd taken so much abuse already that he was mm-hmm. like, "This just must be what it is." Uh, yeah. I mean, his his first encounter with his coach was like, uh, um, you know, he gave him a forearm and then he, you know, stamped the ground and then he yeah. took a forearm and winced. You know, like the, I, the probably the best one of the best lessons you can learn in wrestling is is that it's gonna hurt. Um, yeah. It's gonna, well, it's gonna hurt. You yeah. Know? Well, it's, it's like, it's like in that vein, it's like when he was saying, because obviously there's a lot in this book about him working with Terry Funk, and we'll get to that stuff later on. But like he says, it was something along the lines of, oh, how Terry always threw one of the best punches in the business, and he never knew how he did it until he got into the ring. 
and Terry threw a punch at me. Went, ah, that's how it looks so good because it it's, is it's real. real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that. Uh, a lot of it, honestly, um, has informed me because I mean, it's not you don't lay it in when you're training, really. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But th- from what I've garnered, I would rather be knocked out than someone hit me lightly and pretend I am because it just doesn't look great and I'd rather it look great. Just hit me and I'll just mm-hmm. hit you. Just... Well, you took was it a was it a shot to the gut recently? That I took it I took a, a knee I took a knee to the ribs in the corner um mm. from from a guy usually refs from us a guy called Matt. Um and at the time I didn't play it up. I, I, I remember I took I was like selling because I was taking, took a knee and I was like ah and then I took a knee and I was like ah Ah, <laughs> uh, um, and that I I had bruised bruised ribs for like three weeks or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I did you know? It's again, it's something that you don't entirely feel at the time, but like you know, you definitely feel like ah, I've been rocked a bit. Yeah. Um, at that point, that knee didn't look great, and it was just in training. So I was like, I was like, oh, well, you know, not ideal, but whatever. Whatever. Yeah, well, I think that's what he learns a lot about in this. Is like, again, it, it's a. I, I think, like, correct me wrong, but I think like if you're someone like yourself getting into it, it's one of those perfect books to read because I feel like he does kind of sum up what a lot of wrestlers like. Like, he go obviously he went in with this notion that oh yeah, I know it's all pretend, you know, and all this, and then of course the first lesson he learns is no, not really. I mean, everything that you're doing is going to fucking hurt. It's going to suck, and if you're expecting to make a lot of money out of this, it's probably not going to happen. Especially yeah. back then, and with a guy of his body type, that was the thing. Like, I think he says he worked harder than a lot of people because again, he wasn't that typical body type and never really has been. He's never been the six pack Jack guy. He's always been that very sort of awkward kind of shape, which he, he obviously played into his advantage. Because I mean, I think that's what people uh, impress him. Like as as the Nucci would put it, he got a grapefruit this size because he was willing to take even back in training. He was taking like really like decent bumps and was one that put himself through a lot of pain just to try and stand yeah. out. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean you learn it relatively quickly. I suppose it depends where you train. Uh you know, you can buy a progress package where you basically get fast tracked for little things and then you do it you pay another and you, you go up another level and blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But if you just start at a, a promotion where people, every single person has another job, you know? Yeah. Because there isn't really money in it. Like, we have a few people in our academy and a few people who, you know, wrestle around. And they have other jobs. Just because you need to have other jobs is not steady, ever. You could end up with a broken arm. You could end up with whatever. And it's never never certain that you're going to sell at the merch table. It's never certain you're going to have a decent booking. And oftentimes we'll get a booking for a tenner, you know? But you do it, you do it because you love it, and yeah. and that's why why these people do it. It's why I do it. It's why I want to go back. It's why I'm desperate to do anything I can while I've got the got mm-hmm. the injury. Yeah. Um, and and you know you can tell in this book that he is that kind of person. He would probably have done all of it again, even if it was for nothing. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Because um, I mean, that, that, um, one thing I want to ask about with it because like i only kind of picked up on this when i was reading it again um there are one or two things in this book and i, I say that haven't aged particularly well if 
things sure. to talk about. So obviously you gotta think of the context in this written. I don't think Foley's homophobic in any way, but they're like that chapter where especially he's talking about so one of his one of the first places he goes to abroad is Africa, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, because he goes there for some tours. And a, and a, a common thing in certain parts of Africa is like if 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 you're friends with a man, they will walk around holding hands in certain parts of the culture, and that like freaked them out a little bit. But then he does write how he felt a bit like bad that he like because this guy was this guy he made friends with who's from there just did it to him randomly one day, and he had to explain how that's how that looks in the states. And he did say he felt a little bit bad about that because he said, "Oh well, I'm in this other culture. This guy clearly respected me and thought of me as his friend. I should have just went along with it." But then there's the other part of the book where it's him. Steve Austin and William Regal on a gay beach in, I think, California, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. Yeah, and the way he writes about that, you kind of read it going, okay, it doesn't read particularly well now these days. But I think that's just because of the time when it was written. I don't think it's yeah, inherently homophobic. I, I think all media you have to take in the time it's written. Uh, yeah. I mean, sure, we, we can take this book as a, as a microcosm and then pluck it out and read it in the year of 2022. Uh, yeah. But then you you just kind of have to look at everything around that point. Um, I mean, hell, just look at Raw or look at whatever was on at the time. It, mm. it was all had much worse things, really. Um, but then all media did at the time. Um, I mean, um, I hope we get to it because it's a good book as well. But I'm pretty sure I've read this story countless times in different books. I've, I've def- I think I've read it in William Regal's. And there's and here there's a bit some choice language in that as well. That you look back on and think, okay, not great. I think I think he calls them shirtlifters. Sure, but it, yeah. it's yeah. It, I mean, it was just the accepted thing at the time. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But but even so, I think I think uh, you still look at it as art versus artists, and I think most of oh, these yeah. artists yeah. Uh, have been very vocal uh, supporters and proponents of of you know. Oh. Uh, but- Foley, I, I'm in no way sitting here. Yeah, no, no, but there are definitely, yeah, there are definitely yeah. parts where you just have to put on a. Mm-hmm. This was written in you know this time. So, I mean, I mean, especially with the whole so a, a common thread that's through this book, which I, I, I mean, I guess a lot of more modern people might be lost on is is this book was also used to further his uh, friendly banter rivalry with Al, with Al Snow. So there's a lot of things he does explain it in the book where basically him and Al have this kind of backstage thing with them being friends where they always try to get gigs and jabs at each other and Foley Foley being the ever comedian and just uses his first ever written book to get a lot of those jabs at Al, Al Snow and a lot of them are like very sort of uh, gay kind of humour they're, they're, they're yeah. they're, they are funny yeah they are um, there is a lot of humour in this book and a lot of it just comes from his honesty and just things that have happened it's honestly not necessarily any jokes that he tells it's straight up just holy shit, that's ridiculous that that mm. happened. Um, or, or even you know, it's something that's tragically funny. In in some respects, like you know, we talked about the nurse throwing the ear away very callously, where yeah. he was just like, he's just he's just always thinking like, yeah, definitely sew it back on. He feels for the ear and it's not there, and he's like, yeah, it can be sewed back on. It's fine. <laughs> I think. I think. Because I, I think a good reason why I want to pick this one is because this was the book that really... It wasn't like there hadn't been books about wrestling before, but biographies, I think, especially, there hadn't been a lot of. Mainly because you got to think at the time this release, Kayfabe was still a thing. It was starting to waver a little bit, but it was still kind of a, a, a thing. Like, you, you didn't have it. 
this was sort of the first major autobiography to come along, and then from there on, it's kind of opened the gates, and every wrestler kind of does one now, which is great. I love reading them. Um, but um, I think one thing that was interesting is like he was nearly never supposed to write this book. Actually, I think he talks about it in the follow up. He was given a ghostwriter originally, and it was mm. through meeting the ghostwriter that he realized no one's going to be able to capture what I have to say accurately, no matter how much I tell them, which is why he decided sure. to do it. And the publisher, the publishing took a risk on it because they, they were a bit hesitant. And it wasn't until he turned in the first few pages that they went, okay, no, you can definitely write this. We'll let you do it. And he wrote the book through injury. He had surgery uh, on his knee and he was like, I don't want any painkillers because I've got to sit up in bed and I need to write some chapters mm. so he would be rode through typical foley hard grit as well well it's that's interesting because you know he starts the book basically saying that he was always writing and he and he's you know always told that he should be a writer um so uh, i'm glad that that spark got reignited and he it did come from his mouth because you can tell it, it's you read it i'm not like me you read it in their voice when you do it oh yeah yeah what well, one thing i found quite interesting about the book is when he mm. talks about his time with WCW and even how back all the way then, how inept they were. So there's a lot to cover with that. So we'll just kind of do the cliff notes. He, he, he originally gets brought there uh, on the back of, he was making a bit of a buzz for himself in independent scene. So Foley's big thing, obviously not only was the bumps he could take, but what was essentially, I guess his finisher at the time, which was the elbow drop off the ring apron. So yeah. what Foley would used to do back in those days is he would lay somebody out on the outside, get up on the ring apron, do a, quite a, quite an impressive diving elbow on them right onto the concrete. And I think even then it was a stupid move to take because even back then he was having problems with his hips. So <laughs> I don't think that bit up the long run. Yeah, he was like he he was like the kids that idolized Jeff Hardy before Jeff Hardy was Jeff Hardy. Yeah, um, he was essentially Darby Allen idolizing Jeff, basically. Yeah, I mean, even a thing. I mean, you know, he he, he talks about idolizing um, Superfly. People like that, um, but I don't know where he got the eye. Yeah, he. I mean, he was one of the first hardcorey type guys, really. I suppose he just wanted to. He 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 never stopped being that kid, impressing his mates. I think, mm -hmm. um, and the fact that he was able to have a career as long as he did is at, is pretty much a miracle. Like, oh really. yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, took, like... I took a front bump and my and my arm is broken. And this guy's <laughs> out. This guy's out here just like, yeah, I think I'll do my finisher on concrete. Cool, cool, yeah, cool, yeah, cool. All right, all right. Majority of my matches are just going to be taking bumps. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah, so that's why he got on the radar was because of the bumps he was taking. And again, uh, that's kind of what a lot. Of, I think a lot of his career people kind of. Put him towards that he was just such a good bumper became willing to take these risks, but he was actually a tremendous wrestler given the chance. So that's why he ended up doing CW, and he did do a lot of his first run from what I remember, which caused the lead for a little while. And they went back to the Indies for a bit, did a bunch of other stuff, including I think at that time he did a horrible scaffolding match, which he writes about quite a little bit how he was that was one of the few matches he was legit terrified because of how fucking dangerous they are. And lo and behold, he goes off the top of that, and I think he did suffer quite a brutal injury because of that um and then he returns to wcw and starts getting pushed pretty big he goes straight to a feud with sting then that's this also after that he does the stuff of vader but what the book shows is how inept wcw back then because of how constantly the booker was changing essentially his prominence in, in the show 
depended on who was booking at the time and whether they liked them or not, which seemed to be a common thing throughout the history of WCW. Yeah, it's the it's the type of thing that you will see um, even now in a lot of smaller promotions. In the little that I've seen, um, yeah. I'm very lucky in mine. So it, uh, it's all about professionalism, and all I've seen is professionalism and people being listened to and you know used in in a relatively uh, intelligent manner. But then you go down the road to another promotion. Uh, and it's like I am booking my mate. I am booking people who have never set up a ring. I'm booking people who have never. Sorry, it's meowing. Um, I'm booking people that just, just, just off off the cuff. I'm booking a really expensive guy who, you know, doesn't want to really work, but is. Yeah, I'm paying. I'm paying the guy. He's facing a tenner, and I'm paying him five hundred quid that type of thing um and you expect once a promotion gets to a, a certain level those types of things stop happening but they appear to have not in wcw no certainly not i mean i mean that's that's kind of the credit to foley as well as you said there there are people who could be signed to a random promotion and it's only because the promoters will let them fork out the cash to get them there and they're obviously not that bothered about being there foley see from the way foley writes especially and obviously you've got to take that Maybe with a little bit of salt. It doesn't matter what match he was working, he always seemed to want to give it his all. Yeah, there are definitely people like that. Um, mm. And it can sometimes be to a detriment, especially if your all is taking the heat all the time mm-hmm. and getting hurt all the time. Because you just, you know, you need to give yourself longevity. And that's. Um, Sometimes not easy to do when people aren't looking out for you. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll give you an exact quote from one of my coaches that you sent me earlier today. Because I, 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 you know, one thing that's happened after my injury is I feel like one of the boys, I suppose. Um, mm. Because everyone's reaching out. He said, it's a dangerous game, mate. We have to look out for each other. Um, and, you know, perhaps at some points there were people that took advantage of him offering to do all of these bumps and offering to do all of that and that can happen to a lot of people and that could be pretty 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 rough i mean yeah. even, even if even if you work a safe style if you work a lot and you put your all in i mean you look at the wwe schedule and i mean what was it brett uh you, you see you read brett's um uh post about uh, uh scott hall uh no i don't think i did uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it, it essentially, um, you know, he, he wrote something, you know, pretty nice, and then said, um, if if the schedule wasn't as brutal as it was or is, then a lot of these a lot of these people would still be around, um, and you know, wouldn't have had these issues. So, yeah. So there's there's a case to be put in for not putting your all in all the time. Uh, don't do a tables match on a show where you're getting paid a tenner type thing, but but you know I it, it seemed to it did at least seem to work for him. I I think I think in the case of Foley, it's because it, I know I, I know this. I think I think with Brett's comment as well, what a lot of that leads into is how wrestlers back then obviously it was a, it was a brutal work schedule and they should have, and even now a lot of wrestling companies should give them a lighter schedule. 
I, I, I think a lot of it also stems from like how a lot of them would turn to things like booze and alcohol and painkillers just to try and deal with it. Foley isn't that kind of guy, though. He was taking these horrible bumps and was essentially living with his pain. I think he writes in the book there was only one point where he, he desperately had to take a painkiller. Uh, certainly at this point, and that that was like the one time he'd ever done that. And this the guy who in this book, as we get to who is wrestles a barbed wire, does the thumb taps, does the exploding ring death matches. And for all that, like he always says, like I've only ever took painkillers a handful of times, he's, and he's never been a big drinker. He he is for I don't think anyone could dispute this. I, I doubt he would. His brain is wired differently. Yeah, like he is. Um, he he's just very. Good at taking punishment, I suppose. Um, well, should we, we should say he he says he says in the book like people think he can't feel pain. He says no, I can feel pain. Everything yeah, I do sucks. Well. Yeah. I just take it quite well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, basically, don't ever. I I I I don't think he would ever tell anyone to do it. But never try doing what he did ever because it's. No. It's rough, and th- things are better these days. You know, you don't have to. Usually, someone would get chewed out if they did that to you, and if you find a promotion that does what they did to him, don't yeah. go to that promotion. Don't take yeah. the booking. It's not worth it, and those people probably fucking suck. So, um, well, I think I think some of it is that like he, he it wasn't actually his force, but he did find himself in these situations, and he just kind of had to do it. And as we discussed, I, like I don't Foley certainly wasn't the first one he, to pioneer weapons-based wrestling matches, but I think he was the I, I, people often saw him as the Godfather because he certainly helped popularize it to a degree. Um, so much so that like even he says like a lot of stuff that he did you shouldn't be doing. And um, I, again, going into the sequel a little bit, he has to, at that time that's when backyard wrestling really took off, and he had to write a whole chapter explaining why people shouldn't be doing backyard wrestling because it isn't yeah. really real. Well. I love it wasn't really real wrestling. It was just these kids getting together with whatever weapons they could find and just beating the shit out of each other. True. And this was also before the time where, you know, certain shots to certain places were banned and probably things weren't gimmicked. Like, I can imagine there are there were places that would not use sugar glass if they were doing a glass match or yeah. they wouldn't, you know. Um, well, to that, to that end... I'm- You'll have to tell me, because it's been a while since I've read that chapter, but your book obviously covers the 2000 Street Fight, the Royal Rumble, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I just I just did my uh, Matches You Need to See episode, go download it, please listen, about that match. And and I alluded to there is a very blatant switch in that match. Does he write about that in the book? Uh, I don't recall. Okay, so, okay, in case you're not... I in need case to run and get my notes, probably. I don't even know. <laughs> Um, well, in case you're not familiar, um, a lot of, from what I've read and what I've heard, um, do you know, he pulls out the barbed wire too, I think. Yeah. Um, then there's that, he uses it, it's a street fight, so anything should be good, but then referee Ol Hebner puts it at the Spanish announce table. Mm. And then it's switched. Apparently it's switched to one, a different one, because you can tell because the first one, it starts unraveling. The second one's completely respun. Yeah, it's gimmicks. So it's a gimmick. So that's where there's an obvious switch. So even Foley, despite the fact taking legit bar washers before, would occasionally play it safe when the things are used. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, yeah, I mean, keep it safe where you can, to mm-hmm. be honest. Like, there's or nothing is, wrong with gimmicking I mean, something. 
I mean, probably to that end, it wasn't necessarily for him. It was probably more to protect Triple H. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. but still, even even Foley wasn't like I mean that just shows professional Foley was. He was never. Whereas he's willing to take serious bumps, he he was willing, I guess, willing to always protect his opponent as well. He never took advantage of anyone. He, mm-hmm. And again, I I think we're quite certainly for yourself. I think a lot of people are quite looking grow up in the age we are now because I think wrestling was probably a much more brutal place to get into back then, and you really have to keep working at it to gain people's respect because you would just get nothing but shit all the time. Like people really didn't like anyone trying to train and get into the business, despite the fact you always need new stars. People would really be chewed out and test and tested. And tested by mean you would usually get into the ring the first time they break a bone or your arm deliberately to see if you would come back, you know? Yeah, it's um it's very strange to people on the outside to realise how much of a boys' club it is. Mm-hmm. And it still is in a lot of um a lot of cases. Yeah. It was very I jokingly said this as uh, as I was leaving the, the unit after I broke my arm. But um I was jokingly saying, like, oh, I can't wait for uh, a nurse or a doctor to ask me if it's fake. They did. Yeah. So they they're like, isn't that fake? Is that very, um, you know, the exact same thing that happened at the end of the first chapter when he's talking about losing his ear? Yeah. Exactly happened to me. They said, isn't that fake? Uh, and it's um. It's it's, stra- it's so strange. Uh, it's it's such a strange medium. To, to get into where it's like, you know, you have to pay your dues. You have to shake everyone's hand. You have to clean up. You have to do all this. You have to respect the ring. Like, that's not a, like people don't just wipe their feet because it's it looks good when you get in the ring. You wipe your feet because it, you respect it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and you build up that respect to the point where people end up respecting you. And I forget where, where I started from here, but, um, but yeah, it, it's 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 real. It's a it's it, there's so much to it, and it's it's less of a boys' club now. But you still find that it very much is respect based. It no matter whether that's a, a, a toxic thing or a positive mm. thing, it will be respect based no matter where you go. Yeah, hundred percent. And again, that's why he encountered so many issues in WCW. It's like it was in like a, a like I think people can underestimate, especially before Eric Bischoff took over. Like, even back then, how inept WCW was in before Turner and Bischoff had their hands on it, it would be a constant thing of, like, this guy's the booker one week, a few more weeks later, oh, no, he's been fired. Now we've got this guy coming in. And that's kind of the uphill battle you face, because occasionally, because it would be a case, oh, this guy comes in, oh, he liked me, so he's pushing me probably in the main event scene. Then a couple of months later, oh, no, this guy's been fired now. This guy's coming in, oh, he fucking hates me. Now I'm basically doing... Not even opening matches in some cases. Yes. Yeah, it's... Um... Are you going to get your notes? No, I'm just getting my slim. <laughs> I can't be bothered to get my notes. I don't even know if they're still in my car. I don't know if I've left them somewhere. That's I had fine. to leave my car overnight and whatnot. It might still be in the unit, to be honest. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even now, I'd, I'd speak to some of the wrestlers there that have been to different promotions, and they talk about to, to Toby Valentine, right? Uh, Toby Valentine is someone, by the way, who is going to explode and be huge because already he's yeah. fucking huge and he's so good and he's a uh, he's such a leader as well. Like the first thing he did when he met me was come up, give me a hug, introduce himself. Absolute wonderful guy, and he's fucking amazing in the ring. 
but um you know he's talking about going to these other promotions uh and he, he was like yeah I'll, doesn't need to but he said i'll go and help out in the ring just because and then he gets gets the ring there's like you know 15 15 trainees there not a single one of them knows what they're doing and it's like how have they been put on the ring if they've never been taught the ring they you know they're asking this guy who's come from a different promotion to be like hey how do we set up our ring and he's like fuck i don't know uh, <laughs> he's a he's a farm boy he's farm strong Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, you have yeah. told me about this fellow before. But... Yeah, he's a great guy. Great yeah. Guy. Everyone, the, everyone at my school is so great. They really are. They're just such nice people. I've got, put, I've got to put them over while I'm injured so that when I come back, you know. Um, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think the next section I want to move on to is obviously his time in ECW and uh, his time working in Japan. But what I want to talk about first because um, it, it brings hope to a lot of men of the world is when he obviously meets his wife, Colette. Mm-hmm. Foley, I mean, I, I'd never like to use this kind of language, but Foley bags a ten. Sure, right? sure. He, he he bags when he used to be a former, like essentially a supermodel, and goes back to it a little in the book. So I think it brings a lot of hope to me, and I'd, I'd like actually <laughs> save a bit of a section I thought was quite funny. Go on. So uh, when he first meets her, now I had a little more confidence. I walked over and said hello. Hello, I'm Colette Christie. How did it, how did you get my name, the Captain, how did you get the name Captain Jack? Uh-oh, an incorrect name right off the bat. For a moment, I had flashbacks to Cortland State, but then realized this was actually a good thing. She didn't know who the hell I was, so there was no way that she could be digging me for the small amount of fame. Then again, I wasn't sure she was digging me anyway. Actually, it's Cactus Jack I corrected there. It's a wrestling name. Oh, that sounds like fun, she said, smiling. I went to wrestling matches at Madison Square Garden about five years ago. Have you ever wrestled there? No, I had to admit, I haven't yet. Her next question was kind of a buzzkiller. Where do you wrestle? Well, next week I'm wrestling here at the Raceway. Would you like to go? She laughed a little bit at the fall of wrestling in such a place, and I tried to cover myself by blurting out, I usually wrestle in nice places. <laughs> yeah, he's, he always talks in his book about how much of, how awkward he is, and um, it is it's it is quite lovely to to not just have the wrestling there. Uh, and have his have his love life like um you know but again like we always talk about they always lead into the wrestling like they're they're getting the name wrong and whatnot yeah Uh, there's the one where he like he he has a kiss and it's just the worst kiss ever and then instantly she's like uh, and isn't interested anymore um (laughs) but yes he did bag a 10 and you know we he's not an unattractive guy but probably around that point he had uh, probably got half of those injuries in the back of the book. I think so, he'd already lost his front two teeth by that point as well, for sure. Yeah, he, he'd lo- definitely lost some teeth, and he definitely had a few scars for sure. Well, Mrs. Foley's baby boy is a charmer, mm-hmm. so you know, no, he knew he knew how to woo the right woman. And thankfully, yes. I think I think I think I think what's cool about it as well it's a testament. He is one of the few wrestlers that has had a marriage that's lasted the test of time and survived the business because he's still married to Cola and they've obviously had four children like as well so clearly clearly found and found the the love of his life some some might say yeah um i think i think the next session we'll cover a little a little bit in detail was is my favorite as i said so it was his time in ecw as well as working for japan i feel like even though a lot has been theorizing a lot about it here uh, if you've watched any of the documentaries about him, he does cover his time in Japan, but it's still one of those things that's just got such mystique around it, because I think that's kind of where 
he already had a reputation as being a hardcore dude. That's sort of where I think the hardcore legend name really came from. Yeah. Because the yeah. stuff he was willing to do in Japan, and even still for not that big of a payoff, considering what he was putting himself through. So he goes to WrestleFoy was IWA Japan. And that's where he does the King of the Death match stuff. That's where he wrestles on um, exploding rings. He does the bar wire. He does everything. Puts his body through hell. Um, and I think it, in the grand scheme, of, I think at the time even he writes that like he wasn't sure if it was all worth it. But when he gets to WWE and he sees the reputation that they built upon it, it definitely pays off. I think I think it's funny when he talks about doing the exploding ring match with Terry because. Um, <laughs> Again, it's part of the human, like, like, like they had a demonstration of the explosion and it scared the shit out of them, as it would. You, you're literally going to be in a ring that's going to go off and you think you're going to basically be blown to pieces. And uh, Terry Funk, because he's a mad son of a bitch, said, oh, no, that it needs to be bigger than that. And yep. Foley was like, are you fucking, are you kidding me? <laughs> and then when he's actually in there, I'm pretty sure he writes it how he, it goes off and he just thought that was actually a little bit pathetic. Clearly not on the level of um, Omega, Omega and Moxley's one, but even he was like, that wasn't anywhere near what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that the, the adrenaline pumping during does a lot mm-hmm. for that. Um, well, it's one of those things that back in the day, there's always a bit of mystery, even now to some people, because it's a harder market for, for Westerners to view, mm-hmm. especially back then in the days of tape trading. I'm sure there were many many people maybe even a young uh, uh tony khan who was desperate to get some hardcore uh you know japan tapes yeah and that word spreading was a lot different back then and for it to have reached there and and for him to have that title you know before going back that's it just means people were talking about him it means that not only wrestlers were but fans were and the groundswell he was able to create for himself and the, the, the name he was is uh, is a testament to how much punishment he put himself through. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, it, it was that kind of... Um, it, it, he, he was fairly popular in Japan as well, which is clearly why he was probably given the opportunity to win that. And I think a lot of that was garnered through what little coverage Japan got of America. Because he would say how... I believe before he went out there... And I think some of the credits that happened was when the, there was some Japanese photographers at an American show, and he did something crazy just to make sure they got the pictures of him to get featured in those magazines. Because he says how Japanese fans are very ravenous if they are fans of wrestling. Like obviously they take it very seriously. Whether it's something like the New Japan Strong Style stuff, where it's very mm-hmm. serious, or the more wacky kind of deathmatch wrestling, it's it's considered like they take it very seriously. And he writes about how how, how it's considered an honor. If a fan is hit by one of the wrestlers as well, I'm sure he writes about that because it used to be a big thing for Brody, uh, Bruiser Brody to come out of the ring and would actually beat up the fans on his way to the ring. And I think a lot of that is where it stems from. I think nowadays, I think re- even now, even then, even today, that could be a little careful about that. But he said, "Oh, you know, a fan would take it as a great honor if you punched them on your on the way to the ring." <laughs> I think I think they would. I think uh, uh, there are a lot of DDT fans and. Uh... Hell, people, people in Noah and New Japan, definitely. I, I mean, you know, you are one of those types of fans, in fact, and you've you've been bitten, even. So I am indeed. I've been so, bitten, bitten by I Paul think, Robinson. 
I think a lot of the fans are much like you and I, where if I got hit, I would sell the shit out of it, and I would yeah. be beaming. I would. It would be hard for me to sell it because I'd be beaming ear to ear. Uh, oh, oh, believe me, it wasn't hard for me to sell mine because I legit got full on slapped yes, in the face by him. Yes, you did. And he, yeah. and he bit my finger to the point of drawing blood, so it was yeah. pretty easy to sell. I was yeah. absolutely hammered. So he picked. Yeah. He picked. He did definitely pick the right person to do that to, uh, because anyone else. That could have been a. That could have been a. Oh yeah, you're you're not getting booked again or uh, a lawsuit. But, oh um, no no no! Rob Robo didn't give a shit. Like, cause like what happened was that happened a couple of months later. Progress through the first Newcastle show, and I got to speak to him at the merch table, and I brought that up to him. Obviously, I was like, oh, no, I thought it was like hilarious and all funny and part of the thing. Yeah. You know, I did get properly slapped. But he, he basically was saying about the amount of times he's offered fans into the car park just for a fight, just because he wanted to. Just, just call them, call them on the shit. Because, like, obviously, he's a guy who gets crazy. He, he, he obviously was the point. Is like, look, like, look, if you want to do this, there is like a place over there. I can't do it directly in front of the building because the promoter might be watching. But there's a place over there. We can go do it if you want to. Mm-hmm. And he probably would. He's a small yeah. guy, but he could kill anyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's why it's interesting to see a guy like Foley, who, to anyone that doesn't know him, uh, or or have has read of him. Uh, and and the character he is, which is a very well spoken, mild mannered guy who doesn't really want to get in fights. Yeah. You know, out of the two of us, I'm more of a Robo. You're more of a, a of a Foley. I'll take that. I'll, you know, I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. I'll I've bitten many a finger. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to see you come out in your jeans and gold chains whipping everyone off. I just, I the thing is, if I had a, if I had a like a, a hardcore match, I don't know if I'd do the jeans. It feels played out. It was like if you've done it once, you've done it, you know. Maybe I'd go like I'd go like hot pants. I'd go like jean shorts, but like really, really, like I'd go like 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 up up here type jean shorts, you know. Right. That's so what I do. Ask hanging do out. Stevie Richards, Blue yeah. Old Order type, yeah. Daisy Dukes. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yes, and I mean for his efforts in Japan, Foley was only earning about. Three hundred dollars per trip or something crazy like that. I think I think he writes about one the, the time he comes back from the tournament because he had to like that was about three or four matches he wrestled a different death match degree and obviously the last one he got fairly badly burned. I think he was in quite a decent seat on his plane coming back and the woman next to him was absolutely mortified. I think that's what it was. He somehow got into first class, so he sits down next to this quite well-to-do woman and she looks mortified that there's this like wild, crazy man sat next to her and his arm was completely like I think he was just like brown and grey from the burn and sure. was really starting to smell. Because <laughs> like I think, I think that's the thing. He, he gets home and the first thing his wife says is like she can smell smoking. So she thought someone had been smoking on the plane. He goes, No, that that was basically just me. <laughs> I think what's interesting as well, because obviously there's he works ECW. And I think I think the most interesting part of his ECW career is that he was when he wasn't he, he didn't do the hardcore stuff just to become a yes. Yeah. yes. Although before I, I get that, one of the funnier stories, funnier in hindsight, I guess, I guess not at the time, was how he nearly accidentally killed the Sandman with a frying pan. Yes. Yes. So I think it's the way he tells it, he was he's obviously taken and delivered quite a few frying pan shots. But obviously, there's the right kind of frying pan you're gonna buy. You want to buy something that's fairly lightweight that will just kind of It'll make a nice noise hit someone, it will hurt a little bit. But ECW fans, being what they are, would regularly bring weapons, and I believe he basically was handed like a cast iron skillet 
didn't really register and completely clock the Sandman with that. And I think you can find the match on the network. Yeah, he's he's out. Here's on his a feet. clip. Yeah, he's basically out on his feet, and I think you have to take a good couple of weeks off because of that. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna actually have to check that spot because I didn't go I did go back and watch that one. Mm-hmm. Of of the few things I did go back and watch, I watched some um, Japan stuff from what I could find, but yeah. uh, I didn't watch that. I believe Scott said it in our group chat. Did he, he send that? He sent a clip of it. I'm sure that. he did. Oh. A lot. This was a couple of weeks ago, so that might be quite buried. But yeah, I'm sure he sent the clip of it. Has he been reading it as well? No, he just randomly sent it. I don't know where mm-hmm. he found it. Might was I think it might be on YouTube or a Twitter thing. But I'm sure Scott sent it in our group chat. But anyway, mm-hmm. anyway, but yeah. Um, so he did do a bit of hardcore stuff in ECW. He did garner that rep there, but. I think the main thing that his best stuff was was when he wasn't doing the hardcore stuff. He was deliberately trolling the fans to be a heel. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting seeing because you know his career and the book is you know almost uh, named after it, like him having a having a roughing people up and being a bit rough on himself. But but seeing him just work away from that stuff is very is it's almost strange, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. Like you, well, I, I I can't not think of him being thrown off of hell in a cell. I can't not think of him being tied up in the ropes. To 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 think of him just do just doing the the classic heel face type stuff is is strange. It is strange. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just shows like how much of a storyteller is. So like the sort of main story that built around that Pinto and Hills going into a feud with Tommy Dreamer. And the whole thing of, I think, Tommy had turned down a contract with WCW, so Foley used that and essentially becomes this big WCW mark. Like, being like, how day Tommy Dreamer turned down the promised land of going somewhere like uh, WCW. And then, um, as as Foley writes it, he would deliberately go out there and have matches with Tommy where people thought, oh, they're going to kill each other, they're going to hit each other with weapons, and all Foley would do is put on a, put on a headlock. And then yeah. it would break work, up, something else happened, work, and uh, do another work headlock. Work a WCW-type style. Yeah. yeah, just deliberately have these matches that were absolute stinkers because he knew it would drive the fans crazy. Because I think it, it can be hard, hard for a lot of people who maybe haven't watched a lot of ECW. ECW fans were some of the craziest fans you'll ever see. And basically a lot of that's because they want to see blood, they want to see the tables, they want to see all this crazy stuff. So mm-hmm. to go out there and just have a more very traditional wrestling match is like a big no-no in their eyes. And he was doing that just to incense them. It was It was great stuff. Yeah, it's good. It's it's um, you see it happen a lot in in now that we've got a bit more of a war going on. Um, when you when you talk about the big wrestling wars, obviously it's the Monday Night Wars, but a lot of the smaller promotions at the time, ECW wasn't you know the smallest, but a lot of them were doing the exact same shtick. Um, a lot of Ring of Honor has always been uh, taking the piss out of the dub. You've got the Judas Appreciation Society now, which is doing the exact same thing. And uh, to see it that early on is really, it's really interesting, and it mm. stuck. Out, it did stick out a bit. Well, I mean, I mean, it, it's important to point out. I think with this, it was deliberately taking digs at WCW because ECW and WWE had a good relationship. So I don't think they would have ever tried to jeopardize. They used to swap talent a lot. It was just never that well known back in the day. But um, sure, yeah, like I, I, to, to your point, you see it now briefly. Like certainly, AEW can be. Um, more guilty of doing it more than I'd say WWE is. They're more willing to acknowledge the rival. It's not like they do it on a weekly basis. So then I think that would be people going, okay, this is getting a bit too played out. 
but they are willing to take those little pop shots. The fact like Jericho, whose new little stable are calling themselves sports entertainers. Mm-hmm. And that's their big thing. We're not wrestlers, we're sports entertainers. Well, it's difficult when you're when your entire promotion is the face in the feud, it's difficult to create a heel character when the fans are there are desperate for something that is like when the whole promotion is the face. Mm-hmm. So um it's a it's very interesting. It's still early days on that. But um but yeah, essentially that's what Foley was doing. He's just yeah. being being the other promotion, he's being the figurehead for that. Uh, and it's it's really cool to see. Yeah, hundred percent. And the thing is, even though he got he got to the point where the fans really did hate him, really did boo him, and all this stuff, when he had his last match with ECW, he actually got the chance of please don't go when the match ended. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of shows that even back then, for a lot of people, he was like one of their main guys. For a lot of fans, even yeah. he was doing stuff that was meant to piss them off. Yeah, I mean, people have always been endeared to Foley. Uh, and it, you can't not be endeared to him in his writing. Every chapter that just kind of drags you along with him. He's he's such an endearing guy. I th- I think that's probably if the one word, the one word review I would give. This is now what we do in the Bear Hug Club. We give a one word review. Uh, is endearing. Like he's you can't not love him. He's he's he writes very um. I'm very I'm a shit thesaurus today. I'm I'm on painkiller. <laughs> so uh but he's, it's just endearing. It's endearing. It is endearing. I'm gonna say it one more time, it's endearing. Endearing endearing better stamp of approval. Um so obviously we're just kind of flying through stuff because we because we do want you to go read the book. We're not gonna cover everything because there's a lot. Um I think one of the one of the it's quite interesting like how deep in the book it goes to before he actually gets to WWE. Because like, I've literally just marked it off now on mine. It's that's like how many chap pages cover WWE out of the whole book. Um, what I find interesting about these books, especially because this is what I talk about, a lot of the reason I like to read these are if they're people who had close relationships with Vince McMahon. Because I think Vince McMahon is the ultimate autobiography I would want to read, but I don't think we're ever going to get it. Certainly, he's not going to write it. I don't ever think. So to hear about his relationship, especially right off the bat, is quite fascinating. Um, because um, when Foley goes there, he has a lot of worries about what they're going to do with him, and straight away, a lot of those nearly come true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's it's. Okay. I'll look at. All right. Yeah. It's weird to see that that's always been the case, even if you're moving within the same company from a different brand upwards. Uh. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess it's nice to see that he hasn't changed too much. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the big reason he was obviously brought in is because they needed someone to feud with The Undertaker. And this is what's kind of interesting about Foley back then. He He's only about 6'2", and this was back in the day when it really was the London Giants. He wasn't the biggest guy. But he was always booked as this threat. That's why he was brought back to WCW. They needed someone to work with Sting, and he was a credible threat. They needed someone to work with Vader, and he was a credible threat. By this point, Undertaker, as Foley writes, only threats he had were these big guys that were bigger than him and couldn't necessarily work very well. You know, like your Giant Gonzalez, your Mabels, things like that. And he was the first guy they brought in where Taker could have some pretty damn good matches, and he was a guy who wasn't taller than him or anything like that. It's it's always been... Uh, since training 
with him. It's been he can take hits. And I think that's the character that they've always seen is guy who you just like a like a zombie, you know, yeah. you just can't put him down. And that is a that is a threatening character, really. Like that it's it that can they seem to make it work as a bit of a bit of a bad guy here and there. But it's it's I'm going to say it again. It's one of the most endearing things you can be as a baby face. This guy who can just just gets up no matter what. Like if it's a count of two point nine, he'll get up. If it's a if it's a ten count and he's up at nine, he will get up. Doesn't matter. He will get up. And that's mm. um must just have been what they saw. A guy who will take beatings, and that's probably why they put him with people who uh potentially weren't the, the best workers at the time. Um because you can make anyone look good if you can bump like that. If you can just take a beating and make it look like it hurts, which it usually does. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can work with anyone. Well, I think I think for a lot of that, we can really thank uh, Jim Ross for being the reason he got brought in at WWE because as Foley writes quite early on in his WWE thing, he was quite upset to learn that Vince McMahon had never seen any of his stuff before. Yeah. Wow, where was I ever heard? It was all just word of mouth, which is what a, a lot of it is, Vince. He just didn't realize that. So, big props to Jim Ross. But yeah, Foley did have a lot of reserves about going to WWE because you got to think this was 1996. They were just Foley, essentially, they were they had yet to reach the Attitude Era. It was still the new generation. Not been long with the steroid trial. Things were not particularly great for WWE at the time for attendance and buy rates, things like that. Mm-hmm. And he had a lot of worry about the character they're going to give him because I think he thought he was going to come in as Cactus Jack, but then that first initial meeting. They already, they immediately said, oh no, we want to give you a new character. We want to put you under a new persona. And he was very nearly called Mason the Mutilator. Yeah. Just let that sink in for a little bit. Mason the Mutilator. If you, if you didn't know his characters, uh, you know, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, Mankind, they would probably sound the same, uh, as the Mutilator. Is it, Maybe the most kind of played out. He does love his alliteration, I suppose. He loves his. Uh... Well, I think Vince does sum up because he says, "Where bear with." Because uh, he does say along the lines of, "Oh, we've had like crushes, we've had this, that, and the other, but we've never had a mutilator before." I'm trying to find the exact quote. Oh, yeah, here we go. So yeah, um, in regards to his name, Vince. Uh, this is what Vince kind of had to say in it. So Vince then prepared me for some big news. I could tell he was excited, but what he was uh, by what he was about to say. Did anyone tell you your name yet? He asked with a smile. No, I said. What is it? Well, Vince continued in his very descriptive ways. In this business, we've had crushes, we've had bruises, we've had destroyers, but we've never had a mutilator. And that's what you'll certainly are, a mutilator. Oh, God, I thought... Just when things were going so well, I could hear the dreadful name rolling slowly and painfully across Vince's lips. Mutilator! I wanted to go home, up to Japan, where I was still Kokutusa, Jack, the king of the deathmatch. I think it's, um, I mean, it's always sad when someone has made a name for themselves and then they just get it diminished. Um, All wrestling history should be celebrated, even, you know, should I down the line make it to progress or whatever? I'd love to bring even my my you know a, a, a Cornish uh, or a Devon championship with me because yeah. all all wrestling at every level should be 
your you know your story i suppose um or at least you know he, he didn't exactly reinvent himself for wwe if you're if you're going on a full on character reinvention then maybe but i just don't ever understand it when you're already an established character when you're so beloved for what you've done and that's why you've been brought in for a, a name change like that yeah i'm not i'm not surprised he was a bit scared well, I mean, I think I disagree with you slightly because the Mankind character, yeah, there are parts of it that were similar to Cat Shack, but it was very radically different. Sure. Especially in terms of he was playing very much more of a different character. Like like he says in the book, the whole idea was sort of like a Hannibal Lecter, Hannibal Lecter type character, which which it, it didn't fully go that way, but he was obviously going to be very much unhinged with the screaming, pulled his hair out in the ring, things like that. Obviously, he had to wear a mask. Um, so I think, I think, I think, Par- I think you just say Parvin was sort of excited for like a new change, but he was a little bit crestfallen that he didn't want Cactus Jack. I mean, as, as he says, like Vince had no idea who the hell Cactus Jack was anyway. And I think that's just typical Vince. He kind of likes to control, likes to control the narrative and he likes to control the characters that he has on TV. And he Vince, doesn't super- Vince for CYN confirm. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, but for every, every mankind, you know, you've got, uh, I could say, I guess you could pick any character, every mankind, you've got a butch and every mankind, you've got, uh, sorry, for every mankind, you've got a billion butchers and you've got just singular named people. You've got, uh, shorty G's, you know? Hmm. I mean, you know what, to Pete's credit. He he went on Mark Andrews' podcast recently, and he's quite excited about the name change. I think he's just going to embrace it and do what he can with it. Okay, but have you noticed that how everyone is so excited (laughs) until they get released? Oh well, yeah, maybe maybe when he's if he does leave or get released. Here's the thing. Okay, I think I think he's excited to be on the main roster. From what I know, there are certain wrestlers who I will I will suck it up and I'll just call them Butch. Or I'll call them Gunther, because we've put in the time already watching them. He's yeah. in one of my, my uh, a match that I was fighting to put in my top ten uh, list that I've seen mm-hmm. live. I didn't end up putting it. He's in another one that's in my top ten. So he was nearly in two. Um, mm-hmm. So I will. I'll, I'll suck it up and call him Butch because I would like him to succeed. You know. But there are some people where I'm not going to call them Mace or T-Bar. Yeah, that's Or fine. the Slap Jaw Jack. Slap Jack. Yeah. You know what? You know, you know what's funny in that regard? Because um, I've started playing the My Rise mode on WWE 2K22. It's, I'd say the game's worth it alone for that. It's really good. I've been enjoying it. If you, if you go the NXT route on it, you can wrestle Dominic Dijakovic as Dominic Dijakovic. Dijakovic, but you can't unlock him as that character. People have been able to manipulate the game to put it to put it in community creation, so you can download it that way. But in the game, right? Because his just... gear and his model are still T-bar. there, but he's still T-Bar. Yeah, but he's still T-Bar. And I think there's a lot of stuff. I think because there's like other stuff like that, and it's really interesting. The stuff you can play in the mode that could have been unlockable but isn't. Yeah, that's very stupid. Yeah. It is indeed. Well, anyway, mm-hmm. back to the man at hand. Back, back to Foley. Back to the um, man kind at hand. But yeah, I mean, I, I think his um, 
initial things aside, he does he does do a lot of fighting for the character, like, and he gets a lot of things he actually wants because he talks about how oh, um, he didn't like the name, so he came up with the name Mankind and sold it to Vince, and then Vince went, oh, we'll we'll go with Mankind Mutilator. Eventually, the Mutilator part was dropped to his. I guess to his joy, and it was like things like he was trying to do like interesting stuff. Like he had two, he had like an entrance music and then an exit music as well, and he got that. Like I think he's the only person who's really ever done that. Mm. I don't know if that lasted for a long time, but it was certainly part of the gimmick when he first it's, started. Um, however, you can differentiate yourself in your, differentiate yourself in your presentation it is and. You know, that probably took a lot of convincing to be able to let that happen. Yeah. So good on him. Yeah, sure. I think I, I think as well, him getting WWE is sort of the point where he really starts to... Because I think up until then, like, there are a lot of points where he says how he nearly quit. And I think WWE is when he really found the proper love of, like, what he'd always wanted out of wrestling. Because I think from the more or less day one, the Fury Undertaker, he kind of starts building such immense popularity and a reputation for himself. Like, the feud with Undertaker is brilliant. If you go back and watch it, like, I know a lot of people are fond on things like the Boiler Room Brawl, but Foley has a lot of love for that match, and I watched it back recently, and I I kind of enjoy it for what it is. But then it wasn't even that. He had, like, a cracking match with Shawn Michaels, which is easily one of his top, I'd say, top three matches of all time. Yeah, um, it's weird now. Because it almost feels like people don't come into the company anymore and just go on a instantly iconic run. They don't go on a tear anymore. They don't go straight into things. Because no. looking back, my mind just imagines that everyone had to work their way yeah. towards something like that. But go straight to go straight into a feud with the take with Taker. And this is, you know, Taker wasn't wasn't a nobody at this point, really. Um, it's quite high profile. And For sure. to give him the ball and have him run with it like that, you know, that that's it's something that you probably don't always see these days. I can't. Who was the last person that came in and just went skyrocketed like that? I want to. I honestly want to say someone like AJ. I was about to say AJ did, but it wasn't. I wouldn't say as rapid as Foley, but then AJ had probably a bigger rep than Foley before coming to WWE, I'd argue. Yeah, Foley's one more impressive then. Yeah, yeah, because like I'd say AJ at that point had already had a very full wrestling career. Foley hadn't really didn't handle wrestling that long. I think I think the only people who'd really know Foley, because you have you gotta think of the WWE audience and what they're like. Most people might have known him for wrestling in WCW, but by that point he hadn't been there for two years, and he was obviously under a mask. Mm-hmm. And I think there would have just been a large part of their audience who'd had no clue who he was. So again, yeah, I think you're right. To his credit, that probably makes it even more impressive. But yeah, I'd say AJ, and even then, his wasn't exactly like... I don't know Meteor. That feud with Jericho was okay, but I never felt it went... It, it's not something I'd put as standout in his career with WWE. Before yeah, I mean, I'd that, say... Yeah, yeah. Once he got to Cena, and and you know that was probably that's probably the height I would say he's been at to me is yeah. the Cena feud, which is such a good match. Okay. Um, I, I was that was actually fighting for my top ten at one point. Can't wait till we get to that. By the way, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, 
I, I don't I don't know. Do, do you want to focus a lot on the Dewey stuff? I think a lot of it people would kind of know about, obviously, like Helen and Sarah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think the majority, because the, with these, with these, I mean, mm. with, with, this is our first one, but yeah. it's probably, it's probably going to be like a, should you read this book? And most of the answers are always going to be yes. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we should spoil everything. Oh no! I think we should mainly just go through go through the feelings and and whatnot. But definitely the WWE stuff has has been touched on the most because mm-hmm. that's what we know. Oh most. yeah, yeah. I, I think I'd say if I wanted to round things off a little bit, was to do this sort of thing. Is like I, what I love about the book is like when he writes about later on after he's done Mankind for a bit that he did do love, then he also brought Catch Jack in towards when the when he was was feeling a bit knackered and then he shifted more to comedy i love reading about like how the the, the little story they had where obviously everyone hated vince mcmahon as the character by this point mm-hmm. and um his whole thing was like he was like rooting for vince and the whole thing was he was meant to drive him nuts so the little things he writes about like how they'd be backstage and he would crack vince up so i think i found another section i can read uh, so he initially pitched it to Russo, and Russo at the time was obviously one of the main writers, and Vince loved it, so they had this whole weird, it was kind of like a weird father-son kind of thing they were building, but Vince obviously had true disdain for Foley, he just kind of kept around to you, like, rooted for him. Um, as it turned out, Vince did indeed like it, and thus began our strange pseudo-father-son relationship that some felt was meant to mock Bret Hart. But in reality, it was just meant to be fun. The TV Titans in San Jose, the short-lived team of the mankind of mankind, the Rock and Ken Shamrock, is wreaking havoc on Vince's corporation until Vince pulled the gullible mankind aside to talk some sense into him. Mick, I don't want your new friends to get hurt, and I know you don't either. Vince gently told me with his arm around my shoulder, so maybe the best thing you can do is take Shamrock and the Rock and just convince them to leave. Okay, Mick, now go ahead, get your friends and just leave. I fought over Vince's proposition, but one... But saw one small problem with it. Okay, Vince, I replied. But I need a ride and I don't drive. Vince started to laugh. I'm sorry, Mick, you caught me off guard with that. He smiled as the camera stopped rolling. Sorry, Vince, I apologized. It just came out. Vince, disregard my apology. No, no, that's great. As a matter of fact, don't tell me what you're going to say anymore. I'll just react to it. it it's uh, when you, when you, you know, have the veil pulled back on this kind of thing and they're just riffing, like you, you know, you and your mates make these videos, those moments are always so interesting to me. And I'm, I'm sure that there were so many like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, w- I would love if that's still the case. I don't know if it is with the big golden egg and stuff, but, uh, you know, <laughs> when you've got, when you've got someone who's as personable and funny as, um, Mick Foley or, or, or who have we got now? We've got Pat, Pat McAfee, you yeah. know, currently in a, in a, in a weird program with Vince. So much so that you've got Vince on his podcast and everything. Um, I would still say his podcast is a bit arse-licky, but yeah. overall, still a very good and very interesting uh, show. Um, I, r- I really hope that that's still the case. You know, I hope that's why he likes Austin Theory, because Austin Theory makes him laugh. I'd say more so. I think if you're in Vince's good books and he really sees something in you and you have that relationship with him. But then, even then, I think it was just because of the time frame and how much stuff was going on. It seems like wrestlers especially had a lot more control over what they were doing, and Vince was willing to let them have that control, because as you read there, Foley just slipped in a line that wasn't really supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. It cracked Vince up, and then from then on, Vince like, okay, you just say what you want, essentially. 
And that's what it kind of goes into with the rest of that relationship. Like, it was like the whole thing of um, one of the most classic segments of all time when the funniest is when uh, Mankind visits Vince in the hospital after he's had his um, ankle injured. And he brings in the balloons and the clown and um, the, the birth of Mr. Sokol, which is actually Al Snow's idea. Um, all of that was not pre-planned at all. Like, he was told, okay, Vince is at the hospital. Get some props. You're going to go and do this bit. And it was all just made up by Paul. It was all just off his head. Off That's the good. Of his head. He, he, <laughs> he is a talent. And um, I feel like he could probably make himself work in any era. You know? Yeah. It, he he's someone who I can imagine is just pitching all the time, throwing things out, and a very lucky, well, I don't even know if it's lucky, but fortunate in some regard to have, um, that's just a synonym of lucky, uh, <laughs> to, to have been listened to, I think. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, without those moments. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't know what the wrestling uh, world would be like. I mean, one of the pivotal moments in his story is um you know the rival company saying uh you know he wins the belt who cares and then just killing themselves because of that because everyone was like i'm gonna go and watch that yeah i want to see mcfoley win the WWE title who the fuck would absolutely i think i think what there's one or two things i would like to sort of end up the book is um this kind of speaks a lot to Foley's character. It, it, it's quite heartbreaking because um, he was clearly writing this book when, unfortunately, Owen passed away. Mm-hmm. Because it's like just at the end of one chapter, he has a little thing about of it just occurring, and then he gets a whole chapter in writing about his relationship with Owen and how much of a person, like how much of a friendship they had, and focusing on the pranks the side of Owen as well. I think that's why I quite like about it. He chose to write, obviously, how upset he was by it, but he chose to focus on. The kind of person Owen was, which is this big prankster, and had a lot of love for him. Uh, yeah, I'm going to use it again, but it's because his writing is very endearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems like the kind of person who uh, has had tragedy in his life, but always always is able to talk about it in a nuanced way and. Maybe not, you know, not talk about the positives of it, but but keep an outlook that is um, positive. And he, he writes with sensitivity, and it's it is a joy, and it is endearing, endearing. And it's not even like with the Owen thing, because he writes about the Montreal Screwjob as well, and he was one of the few wrestlers who actually stood up for Brett to a degree and refused to go to Raw the next day, and was like that close to just basically washing his hands with the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was just because of Brett and Owen saying, look, we appreciate what you've done, but you've got to look after yourself here. We'll be fine. That he went back to work, which shows like how much he was willing to stick up for what he believed in, as well as his friends. He seems like a man of conviction. Um, yeah. I mean, everything I've seen him post constantly, where he's called people out uh, or he's stuck up for people. He's He seems like a... A well-read, well-traveled man um, that it, it's very hard to dislike. 100%. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways is that I think when it comes to like, so I, lo- I obviously love reading, uh, but it, it's very rare. I'll Once I've read a book, I'm usually, that's it. It's very rare I'll go back to it. I think mm-hmm. it's a testament to how good this book is that I've read it now like 
four or five times, like I said, and I think I'll easily read it a couple. I'll easily read it more times in the future. It's just yeah. one. It's one of those. It's one of those ones because there's so much to it. It's just so well written. You feel such. You feel like you're going along for his journey of, of, of his life. It's funny, and it's one of those books where every time you go back through, you'll find or remember something that you you missed or forgot about. And I think that's yeah. just why it's such a good page turner because yeah, it's there to it. If you struggle reading, uh, attention wise, um, it's an easy read. If you struggle reading. You know, because you you maybe not the, the the fastest reader. It's it's an easy read because it's written in a in a very accessible way, yet still very intelligent. Um, you know, it's hardly an academic paper, but it's it's uh, he he just he writes very accessibly and intelligently, and it's it is a pleasure. Like you you will find yourself being like, oh, I'll just read a chapter, and then you've read a quarter of the book. Yeah. I think I think I reread this, and bear in mind, it's been a couple of years since I'd last read it. I think I read this in about two, three days. I yeah, I was about, I was about the same. Yeah, yeah, just flew for it because it's just so good. Um, well, okay, then. Well, final thoughts, final remarks on the book overall. It was very endearing. Very endearing. It's it's a lovely read, and honestly, it's it's almost worth it practically for some of the the images you see in it. Uh, oh. it's, it's really interesting seeing some of the stills from his, um, uh, you know, when he was a kid. And yeah. um, I mean, that's the thing; it's packed full of pictures, like every chapter, yeah. like not just yeah, the centerfold. Yeah. You got stuff like that, just like little bits like that. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a lovely read, and it's a good way to kick off the Bear Hug Book Club. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, for my final thoughts, like I think it may be a bit played out, but I feel like this is like. Still, the best wrestling autobiography for my for my taste. Oh, so we've started. We we probably haven't booked booked this very well. Then, if we're starting with a main event, we're just going to go downhill. <laughs> okay, well, I I I'd say it's up there still as one of the best. Like, there's been obviously, like I said, this opened the floodgates for every wrestler to want to write their story. Um, but I still think Mick is like the, the, the like the top tier with this, like with his books. Like, even his follow ups are a great read. Not mm. quite as brilliant as this, but still, like, even after all this time, like, the book's what, like, nearly it's over 20 years old now, and it's still one you can pick up and just go through. And it's mm-hmm. very blunt, it's very honest, it's very funny, it's very endearing. So, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, um, but yeah, this gets this gets the fair hope seal of approval. Um, but this has obviously been the first episode, so thank you for coming along. Uh, what are we going to be reading next, Garrett? Uh, we are going to be reading uh, Young Bucks, Killing the Business. I don't have mine because I'm probably going to do the audiobook for this one because they've recorded it themselves. Uh, but then lined up even after that, we have Kevin with you, the show again. Oh, yeah. And after that, we have my my friend. <laughs> uh, my my, uh, my friend at training has mine currently. But after Killing the Business, we have after uh, after killing the business, we have Mox, Mox which I'm very excited for. It was Both I, have, uh, the hardback for. Yes, um, I got it a couple of weeks ago, and I've already read through it. But I'll definitely read it again. It was it's very good. So I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, figured we would do was start with the one that started all. We come with some more modern ones, and we'll, of course we'll be going backwards and forwards between. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably find the stride for how this works as well. 
um like maybe we'd streamline it or come up with ways to talk about it but yeah we'll figure out the format as we go we wing it we get it done oh yeah um that's just an excuse to read some good books and yeah at the end at the end of this you should be reading Nick Foley's book really it's bloody good go and buy it good. you got no excuse it'll be like three pound on like a bookstore somewhere yeah it did not cost it cost me like a like four quid yeah like even on Amazon it'll be cheap as chips so go nuts you got no excuse um, yeah. well, that's, that's been it for the first edition of the Bag Book Club. Thank you for coming along, and we'll catch you in about, uh, about a month's time, hopefully, for the next one. So, bye, people. Yeah.